0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary, with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend, the Church has entered into the season of Lent, starting on Ash Wednesday a few days before. This is the Sunday, the first Sunday in the season of Lent. And our texts are going to be from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 through 11, for the Old Testament. The Epistle is Romans chapter 8, the second part of the verse, b through 13 and then the gospel reading is from Luke chapter 4 it's verses 1 through 13. So as we take a look at this section today, what's the what's the connection between these texts? The the primary gist seems to be actually all three texts being focused around the themes of Lent rather than the text necessarily being directly linked to one another. For example, gospel text being the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, it would have made sense that the Old Testament reading would have been one of the the sections that he cited as he was speaking to the devil. He's going to cite from Deuteronomy 6 twice. Would have been a good chapter, but instead we have Deuteronomy 26, which is about first fruits and tithes. And so, here with this particular text, the idea of, of a humility, recognizing our place before the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord, and knowing that we are not the ones who save ourselves, these are some things that can help point us to Christ and to consider Christ in all things. So as we consider the context of the book of Deuteronomy around this chapter, really it, it is a long section about the various rules that are a part of God's Old Testament covenant. And that's going to stretch from chapter 4, verse 44, all the way to chapter 26, verse 19, which you'll notice is just a a bit after our text. We are in that same chapter. The moral law, so many times theologians have divided the law into three parts. Moral, as in the things that the Lord expects of all people. Ceremonial, the things that went along as a part of the tabernacle and eventually the temple and the Old Testament worship practices for Israel, and civil, what it was that the people were supposed to do specifically because they were part of God's nation where he was their king. So special laws for them to follow in that regard. So you have these three sections. The moral law would be chapter 4, verse 44 through chapter 11, verse 32. The ceremonial law picks up at chapter 12, verse 1, and that goes through chapter 16 verse 17. And then the civil law, that's going to go from chapter 16 verse 18 through chapter 26 verse 19. So we're near the end of the the giving of the law here in the book of Deuteronomy. And this chapter is about the idea of the first fruit and the tithe. The tithe will show up after what we have. So our text, primarily for us then, is about that first fruit. It's divided into two paragraphs, so let's do verses 1 through 4 to start. When you come into the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that Yahweh your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time, and say to him, I declare today to Yahweh your God that I have come into the land that Yahweh swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of Yahweh your God. So here we have the law in regards to the offering of a first fruit. Now this is actually something that you'll come to know of by another name, later on, as this is the first fruit being instructed to the people when they first come into the land of the promise, uh, the promised land, the land of Israel, and that it sounds like roughly that first year, but the first fruit is a regular part of their life together as God's people. The feast of first fruits is celebrated on the 16th day of the first month as a part of that feast of unleavened bread so this is going to become a a regular ongoing practice of the people of God in the land of Israel but for now we're we're seeing the recording of the the first of this because they aren't even in the land yet they have not even begun this but they're going to when you come into the land that Yahweh your God is giving you that That note's going to be stressed throughout the text, really throughout most of the Torah, when you stop and take a look. This is all about what God is doing. That's a theme of Scripture as a whole, too, that it's not about how we save ourselves, but rather about how the Lord is saving us, what he has done for us, not what we do for him. What we do for him is done in response, not to earn his favor. He gives us his favor even though we... We don't deserve it and so yahweh is going to give them an inheritance that they will pass on to their children and then then they will pass that on to their children and eventually from that inheritance will come the messiah so when they first come into the land which is about to occur their wilderness wandering is at this point basically over moses is about to die um, relatively shortly And they'll mourn his death for 30 days, and then they're going to begin the process of actually entering the promised land. All of those, all the adults that had been around at the time of the the first exodus from Egypt, um, they've passed on, they've died in the wilderness. And now their children, whom they were afraid wouldn't make it, whom they were afraid were going to be killed, their children get to enter the promised land. So when you live in it, once you have taken possession of it, it's worth noting that it does take a few years for them to take possession of the promised land. That can be read about in the book of Joshua, uh, probably as well as the book of Judges when you're at it, if you want to read both of those books. God is going to drive out their enemies before them, this is good. So when they do this, when they possess the land, when God has given it to them, dare to take the first of the fruit of the ground, so the crop, and this is relevant because they haven't been able to do this for the last 40 years. Really, when you think of it from that perspective, the children, who are now the adults, they would not have knowledge of how to do this, right? They have not seen it done because it has been so long since they're their families were rooted in one place. They have been wandering, following that pillar of fire and cloud through the wilderness. God is giving them a land. They're finally going to have one place, one, one spot that they call their own, and they'll be able to plant a crop and still be there a few months later to harvest it. This is a big deal. And so when you harvest, foreign concept... When you harvest from your land that Yahweh your God is giving you, the second time we've seen the phrase, put it in a basket, take it to the place Yahweh your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. Now that's going to be a reference to the city of Jerusalem that God will end up choosing eventually um, as the, the site to put his name. When we consider this from the perspective of when they first enter the promised land, That does not happen right away. It won't be for a few hundred years, really, because you have the period of the judges. Well, they enter, they exited Egypt, 1446 B.C. They enter the Promised Land, 1406 B.C., and then you've got a few hundred years of the period of the judges until you get to 1048 that King Saul is anointed as the first king over Israel, and then it's his successor, it's King David, Who finally is the one who makes Jerusalem officially the capital city and so we would locate the temple there that God's name dwells there but it's not that way for a long time rather the tabernacle as they enter into the promised land the tabernacle will finally come to rest at Shiloh and it will remain there for over 300 years that's a long time and so the offering to be brought before the Lord at his, his home, where he has chosen to make his name dwell, which again is the tabernacle, that location. God is in the midst of his people. The word tabernacle is to dwell, God dwelling with us. You might be reminded of Cain and Abel as you consider this account today, that Cain, well, Abel offered first, right? Abel offered the firstborn of his flock, and Cain offered some of the fruit of the ground. It's not that Cain's offering was bad because Cain's a farmer and God has a preference for meat and is a carnivore or something. That's not the picture there at all. It's the first fruit idea. Abel's offering was pleasing before Yahweh because he gave the first that he had, it showed that he trusted that God would give him a second and a third, that God would provide for him, that God would care for him, whereas Cain doesn't give the first fruit of the ground. In other words, by default then, he gives what's left over after he took what he needed or wanted for himself. That's the distinction there. It's actually a matter of tithing when you look at it from that perspective. When we talk about tithing as a church today, it is often considered in the first fruits sort of perspective. You don't just give 10%, you give the first 10%. You do it right away rather than waiting because if you wait, you're going to feel like, "Oh, I don't actually have enough, I need to keep this back for myself, and that struggle shows up. The first murder in Scripture was over the tithe when you consider it. One Bible verse to keep in mind here with this section as well would be Deuteronomy chapter 6. First, I'm going to do 10 and 11. Well, 10 through 12. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to, and to Jacob, to give you. Notice the similarities. We saw that in this text and we also will Well, we see the idea that he's given them in the land. Anyway, with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God knew... The sinful natures, tendency, and desire. He knew that the Israelites, when they came into the Promised Land, would be tempted to think that they had done it on their own and that they would abandon him even after all that he had done for them. And so the reminder in Deuteronomy 6 is so potently there that they are going to be eating from plants that they did not plant. Another nation planted these things. They get to enjoy them. They'll drink water from cisterns or wells that they did not dig. Somebody else dug it, but God gave it to them. They will live in homes that they did not build with their own hands, but God gave to them. Right? The beauty of that, the Lord is the one who cares for them. The Lord is the one who provides for them. That's the picture. And the Lord does not want them to forget it because then they will be tempted to trust in themselves. And that will lead to their destruction. It ultimately does, but that's hundreds of years later when that will come to pass, because the Lord is patient with them. So they are to take this offering, as we come back to verse 3 of today's text, take the offering to the priest. And the priest is the one who will offer that then before the Lord on the altar of burnt offering that is outside the tabernacle in the kind of courtyard. But this is what they say, I declare today to Yahweh your God that I have come into the land that Yahweh swore to our fathers to give us. So that's the third time in this chapter already that we have now seen that idea that Yahweh made the promise to give it to them and Yahweh gave it to them. Right? This is not their own doing. Yahweh has done it. So they are given this repetition. They're given this phrase to speak before the Lord, to remember that God is the one who has done this for them. This is, it's not the same, but it's a similarity to why your pastor reminds you each week that Jesus loves you and died on the cross to forgive you and rose again to give you new life. That We don't want to fall into the trap where we start to think of how great we are and how we have done this for ourselves because that's what our world around us teaches. You have to be an individual, you have to be able to stand on your own two feet, you have to be able to do this, that, and the other thing for yourself. If you don't take care of you, nobody else will. It's actually the opposite. And the idea that we take care of ourselves becomes a hindrance and a stumbling block to our faith. We are poor, miserable sinners, dead in our trespasses, as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says. The Lord rescues us from that. So there's some connections, some similarities there, this idea of being humble before the Lord our God. And so the Israelite is to say this thing as he makes his offering. And that it was sworn to the fathers before is a reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, going back as early as Genesis chapter 12 which at that point was around, it's in the 2100 BC range. So this has been 700 years. It's been a long time. But the Lord is faithful, and he has made true on his word. All right, then verses 5 through 11, to finish the text for the Old Testament reading. You shall make response before Yahweh your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to Yahweh, the God of our fathers. And Yahweh heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Yahweh, have given me. And you shall set it down before Yahweh your God and worship before Yahweh your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that Yahweh your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner, Is among you. So as they speak, as they bring this first fruit offering before the Lord, they are to speak this paragraph that goes from verse, I guess it's like 5b, down all the way through verse 10a, as a reminder of whose they are and where they come from. It's almost a creed, right? Uh, perhaps we could even say that it is a creed for them, just as you and I gather on, in our churches on the weekend, and we speak our confession of faith uh, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, or the words of the Nicene Creed, or the words of the Athanasian Creed. And those are our common belief together about who God is and what he's done for us. There's some similarity here, as they are constantly going to be reminded of this, this gift that the Lord has given them. So let's look at some of the details here. Um, a wandering Aramean was my father. This appears to be a reference to Jacob, who spent more than a decade working for his uncle Laban. His time with his uncle Laban is the reference to Aram here, because we read in Genesis chapter 28 that he went to Padan Aram, to the house of Laban, who was the Aramean, to find a wife. So we have a reference to Jacob, and then we get the idea that he went down to Egypt, as was told, right? And Joseph is going to go down first, his son, and then he will bring father and the rest of the family down. They will sojourn there. That is, it's not their home. They're foreigners in that place. But they start small in number. Genesis chapter 46 verse 20 tells us, sorry, verse 27, tells us that that number is 70 when Jacob moves his household down into the land of Egypt. But there they become a nation, great, mighty, and populous. We learn by the time that they're leaving Egypt, and you can uh, can read the count of them in the census at the start of the book of Numbers, that they had a total of 603,550 fighting men. That's not even all men, right? The children would not have been included, young men. Nor is it any of the women or the daughters. So likely in the millions by the time that they have left Egypt, the exodus. From 70 to a couple million people in those 400-ish years. Now, the Egyptians in that time had become afraid of them and enslaved them in hopes to keep them from rebelling right? Uh, Basically allowing the group to become popular, strong, and wealthy, and raise up a military presence. If they are enslaved, then they can't become wealthy, and they can't raise up much of a military presence. They're not going to be able to get weapons and, and such things to fight back with the hope of oppressing and crushing, which ends up failing. Why? Because Verse 8, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The Lord heard their prayer, right? They cried to him. He heard and he answered. He answers their prayer and he sends them a deliverer. In this case, Moses and the various miracles that he allows Moses to be able to work in order to call upon Pharaoh to repent and to teach him that Yahweh alone is God. And so God does work. God brings them out with an outstretched arm, and so the picture I like to think of with that is uh, the hand that is holding the sword, and it's stretched out as though to strike. God has swung, right? He has struck Egypt with a mighty blow, with specifically great deeds of terror with signs and wonders. The book of Exodus, if I recall correctly, does use the word sign and wonder i'm wondering if it uses the word miracle we like to use the word plague and that word does show up in the book but it uses different phrases in reference to the same thing the 10 plagues over egypt god is going to work those work through those in order to bring about repentance in egypt exodus chapter 7 verse 5 very clear on that that intention And the Lord then brings them out from Egypt, gives them their own land that he has promised, again, as we talked about before, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as early as Genesis 12, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. In other words, a land of great abundance. Milk, without refrigeration, milk doesn't keep. And so in order to drink milk, you'd have to drink it fresh, pretty much. And to have a land flowing with it means you have... Great livestock, right? Uh, a massive herd <laughs> that can continue to produce and provide. And then honey is, honey is the ancient dessert. It's the dessert of the ancient world, and it's going to be flowing with it. Behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Yahweh, have given me. So again, there's that repetition. Is that the fourth time now, at least, that we've seen that in the text? Yahweh has done this, and so the person is responding out of faith, out of trust. The Lord has given me this. The Lord will provide for me. So here is the first fruit of the ground. Knowing that the Lord will continue to care for them, as the Lord has already done, right? It's it's all in response to what God has already done. So you shall set it down before Yahweh your God and worship before Yahweh your God. So worship is brought into the picture here at this point as well. Rejoice in all that Yahweh your God has given you, fifth time, and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner among you. So the sojourner is the one who is a foreigner, who is traveling and is taking up temporary residence there, set up camp with them. The Levite is... Sort of like the pastor. He's given the responsibility of spiritual care. He's given the responsibility of teaching the word, um, tending to that among the people. And so the Levites were scattered out amongst the various tribes of Israel in the promised land. So in other words here, God has done this for all of his people, all of Israel. So a Lenten, Lenten text for us, because it points us to what the Lord has done for us, how he has given to us all things, and therefore, because of this, we humbly come before him, remembering what good he has done for us and offering up our first fruits. So, the idea of, of offering can be connected to Lent, the sacrifice, right? To give of yourself, um, perhaps in that regard, but I think primarily there. I think the connection we're going for is what God has done for us, and that's Jesus on the cross to forgive our sins, which helps us, again, to reconsider our sins. Am I worthy of this? No. But Christ has spared me. The epistle text is a short one, from Romans chapter 10, verse 8b, so the latter part of the verse, through verse 13. The word is near you. bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our connection here to the season of Lent as we start out would probably be the word confess. Since we think about Lent as a time of remembering our sin, reflecting upon our sin, we confess our sins and we lay them down before Christ trusting that he forgives us of all things. So this is causing us, inviting us to reflect upon and confess both our sin but also our faith, which is the primary part that Paul's actually getting at with what he's written here. Um, There is a connection back to the book of Deuteronomy with this one, as well as Isaiah and Joel. So there's some Old Testament references that we'll see in the text. And that starts with, right off the top actually, Deuteronomy 30. Verse 14 is what Paul is citing there in verse 8, that the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. The Lord is inviting them to confess their faith. He's inviting them um, to be his people, to do good and not evil, that he has set before them that day good and evil. As a, a Lutheran today, and having studied God's word, when I hear a phrase like the word is near you, my mind jumps to Jesus, right? And we think of John chapter 1, that the, the, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we know that that is a reference to Jesus Christ, and then later in the chapter that He has, the word has tabernacled with us, dwelled with us. We think then of the Lord's Supper, where the word of Jesus, the word that is Jesus, is placed on our lips, on our tongue, for us, the body and blood of Christ for forgiveness. The idea that that the word is in our heart is connected to the promise in Jeremiah chapter 31, where there's a new covenant and the Lord will put his word in the hearts, his law in the hearts of his people, that he will forgive their sins, he will remember their iniquity no more. That the word of God would be in our mouth is also a reference to us speaking and proclaiming it, which is, I think, going to be important in this particular text. I mean, you see it there, right? Paul says that is the word of faith that we proclaim. As Christians, we are not called to silence. We are called to speak. We are called to share the word of God with those around us. And that's going to be a part of this text. So, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a pretty short list, right? Talking about works, righteousness, and people in, in the various ages of the church, including today, who believe that you must do good works to save yourself, that you must somehow earn God's favor, earn his forgiveness and his love. Here's your list. Here's what you have to do. You want to be saved? Here it is. Confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Believe Jesus is risen, right? Oh, I can't even do it. It's the season of Lent. I can't use the Easter greeting, right? The Christ is risen. We, we know it. We know it to be true. Hold on to that. Hold that reality, that truth, that declaration in your heart and confess it to one another. Share it with your neighbor. They need to know. Ultimately, as we saw with the Deuteronomy reading, this is not about what we do, right? This is about his work, not ours. Because I cannot confess with my mouth unless the Spirit has given me faith. I cannot believe in my heart unless the Spirit has placed that faith there. These are gifts that the Lord has already done. And the Lord then welcomes me into his promised land. So as as we think of the first fruits idea of the previous reading, that this was encouraging us to give ourselves to the Lord. To trust in him above all things with the heart one believes and is justified justified is how you are made right how you are put into a proper place before God again a good place before God instead of being viewed on account of your sin and our desperate plight God has given us faith as a gift so we believe in our hearts. And so the word here of heart is interesting to consider. Uh, The the Greek word is cardia, where we get our cardiac word from in English. The, The heart could also be translated mind, or conscience, or even more generically, just inner part. It's a a distinction that's hard for us to really know and make. Right. We've we've had differences in the history of the world about where things happen inside of our body. The the ancient world used to think that your feelings were in your gut. And some of that actually lives on today. Like we, we talk about acting on your gut. I have a gut feeling about this. So the ancient world thought feelings were in the gut, um, and so compassion came from there, and the Greek word for that that is is splagna. Um, the, the heart then was where they considered thought and things like that to come from. We're at a spot today where we look at it differently, right? We believe that our emotions come from the heart, And that our thoughts come from the mind that is in our head. I'm honestly not sure why we think our emotions come from the heart. I mean, we all know Valentine's Day. And we know, you know, drawing hearts and making hearts and giving hearts to other people and all that stuff. But... Do we have any proof, right, that that's where our emotions actually come from? And I'm not aware of anything. Um, it's just man trying to figure out best we can what what's happening inside of our body. So it's an interesting kind of distinction to bring up and to point out and consider from time to time just what is meant by some of these words um, as we see them in Scripture. We see... The apostles talk this way, or we see Jesus talk this way. So, what I'm getting at, verse 10 then, with the heart one believes and is justified, trust. Trust in God. If you want to say that comes from your gut, or your heart, or your mind, whatever. Your inward parts. Trust in God. The whole of you trusts in God. That is what leads to this. And that's the gift that the Spirit creates. With the mouth and that we would confess and that we are saved. The way that's phrased is that by by confessing you are saved... And verse 13 is going to speak similar to that as well, and actually verse 12 also. We know that we're saved by faith. We know that we're saved by the work that Jesus Christ himself has done for us, that he's done on our account, that his forgiveness on the cross, his blood shed for us is what gives us this good news, this good gift. And so what's going on in this text then is that we we believe it, we trust it, we trust in his promises, we place all of our hope in that, and we are not afraid of him. We're not ashamed of him in this world. We're not ashamed to confess our faith, to speak it out loud to those around us. Luke 2. Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9 would be a good connection spot here. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. We're going to have that text together um, as we get to... Well, no, we don't. We're going to skip over that section of Luke chapter 12. We'll do Luke 12 and Proverbs 13 and 14 this year, later on, in the summer months. If you are not willing to confess Jesus before men, if the threat of losing your job causes you to be silent, or if the thought of losing your life causes you to deny Jesus in front of others, the word of christ himself is that you will be rejected you will be denied that the lord would basically be ashamed to speak of us before god and so while it's not the confession that saves us it's not like our works save us it is a gift by which we are saved and romans is clear on that all the way through The Lord does give us work to do. The Lord has called us to make disciples of all nations. The Lord has commanded that we go and love our neighbor. And the greatest way we love our neighbor is by sharing Christ with them. And if we don't do that, we're rejecting the gifts that the Lord gives. We're showing a hate and despising of our neighbor and ultimately of God himself. And so works do not save us. But the Christian who has faith in God because the Spirit has given him that gift of faith, the Christian serves the Lord. Maybe not perfectly. Not perfectly. But we, we seek to serve the Lord. We seek to live for him in this life and in this world. That is what flows from that faith. For the scripture says, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. So believes in him, believes in Jesus, will not be put to shame. Embarrassed in front of their neighbors. All right, we were just talking about being ashamed of telling your neighbor about Jesus because of, you know, some kind of a threat of punishment or persecution But it's actually the opposite, that the one who believes in Jesus, ultimately, in the end, on the last day, you will not be put to shame. The world will be as it perishes on that day of Christ's return, but you will not be when the Lord, the King of all things, welcomes you into his paradise. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, verse 12. There's only one Lord, right? Um, that's Paul's writing elsewhere one Lord one faith one baptism there is one Lord the same Lord of all and he bestows his riches on all who call on him we saw an example of that actually in the Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 26 that they cried to Yahweh the God of their fathers and Yahweh heard our voice saw our affliction our toil and our oppression and Yahweh brought us out of Egypt and so the Lord hears us when we pray and he gives us his gifts And, I mean, his gifts to us are numerous, right? But the great oppression that we face is from sin, death, and the devil. And so Christ's gift of forgiveness overcomes all of that for us. And he gives it to us richly, abundantly. Our cup overflows with his forgiveness. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's from Joel 2. 2 verse 32 so whoever calls on the name of the lord will be saved and this is where the christian wants to be right calling on trusting in placing our hope in christ he is for you he has saved you by his blood by his death he has rescued you and we put our hope in that good news We believe it in our heart and we confess it in our mouth. That is, we confess that Jesus is Lord and we confess that before him, but also to our neighbor. And our gospel text is then from Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13. It's the account of Jesus in the wilderness, having fasted for 40 days and then being tempted by the devil The connection to Lent seems pretty strong and clear with this one. It's the idea of the 40 days, as we have the 40-day season of Lent, as well as fasting, which has long been one of the Church's ways to observe the season of Lent. So fasting is the idea that we give something up. Uh, Typically, scripturally speaking, fasting was in regard to food, or it could have been food and water, although those fasts were shorter in length, usually three days compared to seven days standards, not always. The idea of the fast for the Christian today is that we give up something during the season of Lent for the, not the hope of becoming better Christians, right? That's not, we're not doing this around good works and trying to say, look at me, look how great I am we fast, we choose to give up something that will allow us to focus on Christ. And so there's a couple of different categories, really, what you give up. If you give up something that is time-consuming, so I'm going to give up social media for Lent, or I'm going to give up TV, or I'm going to give up whatever, right? Those things that are actual time commitments of yours. When you are then looking to... Well, as you go through the season, as you're looking to those things and saying, well, I wish I could get on the internet right now. Um, I, I really wish I could go on Facebook or on TikTok. When you, when you are in that moment, you stop yourself. You remember what Lent is. You remember that Christ has, has done this all for you. He is already victorious over sin, death, and the devil for you. He has kept the law perfectly for you. And then you spend that moment in his word. You spend that moment in prayer. So if you would have spent the next 30 minutes on social media, open your Bible and read for 20 minutes and then pray for 10. Or something like that. That's the aim. That's the goal of that category. If you're, your fast is from something that I don't know, consume might be the right category here. So you're going to give up coffee or you're going to give up ice cream or you're going to give up, you know, something of that nature. Whenever you would be tempted to consume such a thing, pray. You're not going to be in those 30-minute ones because you're not, you know, you're not switching out a, a specific period of time. But in that moment where your body says, I want some coffee, instead of going and reaching for the Keurig or hopping in the car and driving to a coffee shop, pray. Pray that the Lord would sustain you. Pray that the Lord would give you what you need in that day. So the goal of our fasting is to point to Christ and to his love for us, his care for us, how he has conquered sin, death, and the devil for us. It's not about what we do, but it's about him. That's the aim of the entire season as we remember our sins and we reflect on, on the depth of our sin and what Jesus then did on account of that for us. And so we've got the 40 days connection as well, as we see with Jesus here, and that's the length of the season of Lent, although Lent technically is actually 46 days when you count it on your calendar because the Sundays in Lent don't count On Sunday, the Christian celebrates the resurrection. They are many Easters. So as you gather in your church this Sunday morning for the first Sunday in Lent, it is a many Easter. Technically, whatever you fast from during Lent, you can have on Sunday. So if you fasted from coffee, you can have coffee. If you're fasting from social media, you can get on TikTok. The irony is that what the church as a whole gives up in in the Lutheran traditions of things, the church gives up the word hallelujah during the season of Lent, that you cannot say that word, right? We don't sing it in worship. We worship on Sundays. Sundays are many Easters. We can have the things we've given up for Lent on Sunday. But if the church did that, if we used that word hallelujah, on Sunday mornings, in worship, as we gathered together, nobody would notice we'd given it up, right? If you were a community that actually was together every day and worshipped every day, then you could successfully operate that way. But otherwise, it would just be like normal. And there would not be anything special to coming together on Easter Sunday and hearing that word like 73 times or however many children always love counting that word in the Easter service because it shows up all over the place. All right, so as we come to the gospel account from Luke 4, we are rewinding. This would have actually been quite fitting, chronologically speaking, uh, several weeks ago as we went through the season of Epiphany, the second Sunday of Epiphany, we used the text from John. This would have plugged in right there, Um, but we wanted, it looks like the lectionary committee that put this together, wanted to use this as a Lenten emphasis, and so we delayed on using this particular passage instead. So John the Baptist has grown up, he's begun his ministry, he's been baptizing people, and that included Jesus, and that's where our text picks up. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness... For forty days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So again, Jesus coming off of the baptism event, so he was at the Jordan River, where John the Baptist, his cousin, baptized him in the Jordan there. He is left from there, where the Holy Spirit has descended upon him in his baptism. We read about that in the Gospel accounts. He is then led by the Holy Spirit to go out into the wilderness for 40 days. This is one that probably many Christians wonder about, and there's not a lot of scriptural answer given in the Gospel accounts. I mean, why was Jesus baptized? Only Matthew answers, and his answer is quite confusing. Why did Jesus go into the wilderness and fast for 40 days? The scriptures don't say. The, so Matthew's reason for why Jesus is baptized is in order to fulfill all righteousness, which again is not all that clear and helpful uh, for most people as they hear it. The picture that is going on here is that Jesus is doing all of this to fulfill the law that we failed to keep. Jesus is living a life that we were called to live, that we failed to live. He's going to keep the law perfectly for us. Um, the common, I, I can't call it common, its I guess it's still uncommon, but the phrase that I heard in my seminary days, the phrase that I hear even still in the church's theology sometimes today, is that this is what we call Israel reduced to one, And so you think of the Old Testament church, the people of Israel, right, Um, the holy nation of God, that that was his people, they were to follow his laws and they failed, and then so that's Israel, reduced to one. Picture it like an hourglass, how all that sand in the top has to pass through that one point in the middle. That one point in the middle through which everything passes is Jesus. Israel reduced to one. One grain of sand passing through at a time. Whatever, you get the picture there. And then it comes out the other end. The New Testament church, you and me, those who have faith in Christ. That's kind of the picture. Jesus does all of this, and what we have is a gift from him. So Israel looked forward to Christ coming. They're redeemed in him. We look back on the fact that Christ came, and we're redeemed in him. So Jesus is going out into the wilderness very specifically to fulfill what Israel failed to do in the Exodus. They went out into the wilderness for 40 years, and they were tempted, and they floundered. Now, some people might snarkily respond pretty quick to that, that Jesus was only out there for 40 days. He had it a lot easier than they did. Israel didn't make it 40 days before they were grumbling against God. Remember, as they leave Egypt, right? They're fleeing from Pharaoh. Well, even before they left Egypt, they were already upset with Moses on more than one occasion. But as, as they're leaving Egypt and they, they're walking towards the Red Sea, what happens? Pharaoh has a change of heart again, change of mind, and he gets his army together and they chase him down. So that's not been but days at most. And they, they pin them against the Red Sea. And Israel, they start to grumble against God, wondering why they have been brought out into the wilderness to be killed. Better to have stayed as slaves in Egypt. So, Jesus makes it significantly longer than the Israelites did without sin. And one of the things that they complain about very quickly after that was food. That they didn't have any food to eat, at least when they were in Egypt, they had all the meat pots and things, they... They quite, it's a good old days syndrome, right? They looked back on the past and thought they had things better than they actually did. God gives them manna in the wilderness to feed them. And he gives it to them for 40 years. So the 40 years, 40 days connection here for Jesus. He spends 40 days without food of any kind. (laughs) We get the little note and when they were ended, he was hungry. We wouldn't be alive, right? Our our earthly bodies do not last without food that long. Uh, it's not the way God designed us to be. Although God also didn't design us to die either. So food scarcity would not have been an issue um, prior to the fall. So Jesus is hungry. And the devil is going to seek to take advantage of that, right? It, from the text, both in Matthew and here in Luke, The devil shows up when the 40 days have concluded, when Jesus is at this point of hunger. And the devil comes, and the devil tempts Jesus. And the first temptation is related to what Jesus is feeling. And he's feeling that grumbling stomach. And so the devil says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, can he? Yes. Absolutely, of course. He is God. This is the one who spoke creation into existence, who said, let there be light, and there was light, who created your body and mine out of nothing. If he wanted to make a rock turn into a loaf of bread, he could do it. The problem is, again, it's the temptation... The devil is encouraging him to take this into his own control instead of trusting in God. This is a period of temptation, a period of trial, and Jesus is well aware of it, that he has to make it through this time and not rely on himself. I mean, he's God. There's a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is to rely on... On God the Father and so he answers from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 man shall not live by bread alone Matthew actually tells us in his account that he says he finishes the rest of that verse but by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh Matthew gives us more detail in the next temptation as well that the devil took him up on a high mountain Um, so Matthew just has some more details than Luke included here and that's okay. So Luke gives us this next temptation, that the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment that is all from, you know, one location. If you can imagine being somewhere up high and being able to see the entire world, like what a view first, but then uh, Satan says, all this I'll give to you is the devil's temptation there is truth in what the devil says bear that in mind i will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me that's a truth it was delivered to him by adam in the beginning god created everything and he was king over his creation And he chose, when he created Adam and Eve, when he created them to be his caretakers of this creation, he chose to entrust it to them. And when they then sinned, when they broke his command, when they did what he told them not to do, they took his kingdom that he had entrusted to them and they handed it to Satan, to the serpent in the garden who had tempted them who had said that they, you know, they shouldn't really listen to God. Did God really say they bought his temptation? They gave in, they handed it over. And so the devil has been, as the the New Testament will call him, prince of this world ever since. He does have a, a lot of power. He really does. But It is not actually his to give. He says, I give it to whom I will. That's an intriguing statement. We learn from Romans chapter 13 that, in fact, everything is God's and that God, God gives all authority that is. Every governing authority comes from God. And so for the devil to say that he gives kingdoms to whom he wills Strikes me most likely as a lie, but if it's not a lie, it means that God God is working through the devil in order to bring about what the Lord purposes, and that certainly does happen. We see that. We even see it in in the book of Revelation, that the Lord works through the devil and he works through demons to bring about suffering that will bring about repentance in the life of unbelievers, and that will strengthen the faith of the faithful. So it's hard to say for sure. The devil's a liar. And there's always always going to be some truth to what he says, which makes the lie that much more convincing. So he says to Jesus, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Why not? Right? For the devil, I mean... If he can get Jesus to bite, if he can get Jesus to sin, then he's won. So why not offer Jesus the world? What what more can he offer? If Jesus if Jesus gives in and sins, then the plan of God for salvation has been thwarted. And the devil hates the things of God. The devil hates the idea that God would save that God would rescue, that God would deliver, and so he's attacking it, and that attack fails because Jesus knows. Jesus is God. Jesus wants to save us. And so he responds by citing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, which is basically first commandment stuff. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. There is no bowing down to the devil. Can't do it. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He loves his Father and he will do his Father's will, not the devil's. All right, that's the first two temptations. Then we come to verses 9 through 13 to wrap up with the text for the week. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So the devil takes Jesus to the temple and takes him up on a great height probably some 60 feet up in the air. Throw yourself down, if you are the Son of God. Jesus doesn't have to prove himself to the devil. The devil knows Jesus. The devil... On the day that Jesus created the devil, (laughs) the devil was there, obviously. The devil knows who his creator is. But he rejects him, he despises him, and so he is, again, seeking to attack, seeking to destroy what God does and what God uses. And so he's tempting Jesus to throw himself down to prove himself. If you really are the son of God, an angel will catch you. You've got lots of those. They will surely help you. He even goes and uses God's word against God. Right? You see that? He's adapting, like an opponent that can kind of read what you're doing and, and see and observe patterns over time and make adjustments to, to better be able to fight back. The devil has seen Jesus use God's word to say no to his temptations, and so he responds here by using God's word. Did God really say that fits in again? He uses God's word to try and trap Jesus into a temptation to try to get Jesus to bite, to get him to sin. So he cites from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, which is a psalm about how God saves and rescues his people, how he delivers us. It's a beautiful psalm. I should be able to say that about all of them, right? But I want to say it specifically because we're talking about it. Jesus answered, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's cited from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Jesus could jump off of the temple, and an angel could catch him. In fact, I'm willing to say that Jesus could jump off of the temple, and he would not fall to his death. Just as Jesus could walk on water and not sink. never performed that particular miracle of jumping off of a building and floating or hovering or flying or anything like that, but he's God, right? To put the Lord your God to the test, to make God prove himself, is something God has forbidden said not to do. And so Jesus doesn't bite, Jesus doesn't give in. The devil's temptations, he realizes, have failed, and so he takes his leave. We see it from Matthew's Gospel, actually, Jesus commanded him to leave. But the temptations have failed. And so he departs until an opportune time. I think we would probably connect that to the cross, to the betrayal of Judas as he sells out Jesus hiding place, his secret resting location for 30 pieces of silver, and that the devil is then able to, to round up some troops, some temple guards, to rest Jesus, to torture God, to kill God. The cross is at the one moment the devil thinking he's defeated Jesus, but at the same exact time it is the devil coming to realize that Jesus has defeated him. Really kind of a fun, fun thing to consider. That what the devil thought would be his victory ended up being his downfall. Thanks be to God.